Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, friends. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Out of Patience with me, Matthew Zachary. I've been living in oncology for so very long for obvious reasons. I am a cancer patient and all that fabulous stuff that comes with it. But every now and then I get opportunities to move into other areas of, let's shall we say, healthcare fuckery. And today's show is one of those shows. And today's show is about sepsis. Something I'm grateful to know nothing about outside of that one episode of The Sopranos where Tony got shot and nearly died of sepsis. So joining me today is Tom Heyman, the president and CEO of the Sepsis Alliance, and joining him also, a plus one, Bennett Kleinberg, a sepsis survivor. Apparently, survivor isn't just limited to cancer, and that is a good thing because it means he's alive, he's well, and they're here in studio. And one more thing before we get started, I am a proud graduate of Binghamton University, and every now and then I troll LinkedIn for interesting alumni, and Tom is one of those people. So we share a love of the Southern Tier, possibly of Wegmans, I mean, of course, of Wegmans, and what it was like to go to Binghamton when they were the Bearcats or the Colonials or or whatever you want to call them. So Tom Heyman, a Binghamton alumni, and his plus one, Benedict Kleinberg, a sepsis survivor, are here to talk about all things fuckery in sepsis, a very serious show with a surprising sense of humor. Tom, Bennett, feel like that's... Welcome, Tom Bennett. <laughs> Tom and Bennett, welcome to the uh, to be out of patience hot seats. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. I love when things work out karmically and people come in studio and we get to look at each other in the eyes and get our body language. And for the listeners, I, I mentioned this at the at the top of the show for the intro, but I troll LinkedIn very often for fellow Binghamton alumni that I just think are interesting people. And whether they work in healthcare or not, I just, I'd love to talk about my experience. Uh, being an alumni, I had a great time there. I'm the biggest proponent of, please go to Binghamton. It's a great college. It's a great university. And uh, I found Tom Heyman on there and we we struck up a chat and he happened to work for the Sepsis Foundation, which is just another angle of healthcare fuckery. But I'm like, all right, let's get him on the show. Wax poetic about, you know, what is it? Uh, Vestal County. <laughs> that's right. Broom County. Broom County. That's right. Vestal Vestal Parkway in yes. Broome County. That's right. right. And he's like, can I bring my buddy? I'm like, sure. So Bennett Kleinberg, plus one. I am the plus one. But you're a plus one for good reasons, too. Because there are not many plus ones who- You are a rare plus one. I am a rare plus one. That's right. So before we get into the, the deep, dark stuff, because this is pretty serious stuff, tell my audience your, your backstory. You come from- marketing, advertising, but you are like attached to, I got my Michael Jackson and the Rolling Stones. Go. 
So, uh, yes, those are two bold-faced names who I have uh, worked for in my career. So uh, my, my story is kind of quick. I graduated college. I had nothing to do. I came to New York looking for work, and I hooked up with a PR agency, which at the time was one of the premier public, uh, entertainment public relations firms in the country. Little did I know. Little did I know about PR. And I started working for them, and we represented uh, everyone you could think of, including Tony Bennett at the time. Uh, and from there— Rest uh, in peace, Tony Bennett. That's rest right. in peace. Recently passed as of this taping. Yes, a, uh, a fabulous client, a fabulous performer. Um, it was wonderful being the assistant to the PR person who represented Tony at the time. But we had—we we represented everybody. The, the, the firm was Soldiers, Roskin Friedman. We had we were simultaneously representing Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Alan King, Whitney Houston, Barry Manilow. We had a ton of a ton of people, and I was just an assistant at the time. And uh, from there, I answered the phone one day, and it was uh, Mick Jagger's manager, and I got a job on the Rolling Stones tour. Long story there. Uh, and that's I toured, a separate podcast. That's a separate oh. podcast, <laughs> and I uh, I worked on the 1989 Steel Wheels tour which uh, at the time was one of the highest grossing concerts. Which I attended with my dad and my brother. Which show did you see? It was the one in the city. So Shea Stadium. It was Shea. It wasn't the Garden, right? It was Shea. No, it was Shea. That was an all-stadium tour. So that tour, the the United States. Right, that was before they won the World Series when I still cared about them. The Mets you're talking about. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And from there, I went back to the agency and I picked up the phone one day and I knew that Michael Jackson was going to be going on tour. And I weaseled my way into a job on that tour. And that was that became Bennett's big European adventure. I had never been to Europe before. So that turned toward Europe and Japan. And then I came back and I had nothing to do and worked uh, worked for Spin Magazine for a while. Then I worked at uh, Edelman Public Relations and. And it was at Edelman, my career sort of took a, a very strange turn because I went from doing all entertainment to doing corporate stuff. And it was right at the time that the internet was kind of exploding. And I'm people, sorry, the what? The interweb. The interweb. The, the interweb. Tubes. The tubes. And so one of my clients was launching a website and they said, could, could we help them promote that? So I began working right at the uh, sort of the juncture of where music and... Uh, technology were were meeting at post the Napster, pre Napster, pre Napster, okay. pre Napster. That was a watershed. That was a watershed. I still have memories of this guy coming up to me on the street saying, "Man, there's this thing called Napster, and you can see anything you want. You know, you, you can listen to anything you want." So from there, my career just sort of took off, and I'm still doing public relations. Uh, still, uh, I've I've started working corporate public relations and uh, media relations and I've always worked um, in the media space and I'm an independent consultant. And, uh, and then along the way uh, in the mix of all that, I got sepsis, which we can talk about later. Right. And you met Tom out of the most uh, inauspicious. (laughs) I met, yeah, I met Tom. uh, I think, I don't even know how many years it's been, but, but Tom was just uh, just beginning to work with Sepsis Alliance, and they were in their formative stages, and Tom can give the history of that. And they said, could you help out doing some PR? And I said, I really don't know what I can do for you, but I will be happy to help in any Wait, way. Wait, was Michael Jackson dead by then? 
<laughs> I, do, I do not know. He did not have sepsis. No. Um, but Tom, I'm going to start with like as much as I'm fanboying over like that, you working with all these people I grew up with that I love. Tom is really the star here. I have to say, he knows. But, I mean, he knows everything. But if, you know, the the fact that you are an author and I'm an author to be. Right. I'm, I'm really envious of what it took, I'm sure, a labor of love to get all your books out there. Can you talk about your origins as, as an author? Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, my roots, uh, it all goes back to SUNY Binghamton and Harper College. Yep. Everything starts there. I was photography editor of The Pipe Dream. Nice. Uh, the, news, the college newspaper and got to photograph uh, – Jerry Garcia and Rod Stewart and all kinds of great folks. And and the editor of Pipe Dream at the time was a guy named Ron Brownstein, who's now one of the, you know, the great pundits, on, political pundits on, on cable television. And I remember him being a great guy. And uh, so we were much younger then. And uh, so, you know, I have an interest in in lots of different things. From, from Binghamton, I went on to Northwestern and got a, a graduate degree in business at, at Columbia, worked at Lorimar with Jane Fonda in the early days of the home video business and uh, worked at NPR in Chicago and PBS in New York and ended up at A&E Television, uh, where I became the first general manager of the Biography Channel. Wow. When it when it launched, I was there when we launched the History Channel. Back when it told biographies. Yeah, when it told biographies before it was about all kinds of things. And we rebranded it to bio and uh, had a great run, you know, grew it into a, a, a big, big business. And, and somewhere along the way, I started writing books and had an idea one night for a book. I said, I wonder how many people are doing what I'm doing right now. And it became a book called On an Average Day. And it was kind of a statistical portrait of America on an average day. How many babies born? How many people die? How many people killed by handguns? How many M&Ms consumed? And it took off. And uh, as a result, Random House asked me to do on an average day in the Soviet Union before it was broken up, on an average day in Japan, in an average lifetime. So we, I had stats in there like in an average lifetime, the average American spends uh, six months waiting at red lights and three months having sex. So there were lots of very interesting things, statistically accurate. Wait, was that based on state? Because I would imagine Montana might be the flip. It might be the flip. And it was before Right on Red. So I'm, oh. I'm, I'm dating ah. myself. Wow, okay. I wrote a book called The Unofficial U.S. Census, which looked at things that aren't usually counted by the Census Bureau, like how many registered vampires are there in the country, Five, <laughs> 500, um, and things like that that you need to know. How many people, how, is, how many forks does the average you know, kitchen have? We didn't get we didn't get into that level of detail, but I, I want that answer. We had how many smooth chested, hairy chested men? How many small, medium, large breasted women? We we covered all the important things. So a book called uh, "The Ten Things Every Grown Up Needs to Know" was that like what I what I know I learned in kindergarten kind of thing? That was my last book. That was kind of like a Doctor Spock for grownups. Mm-hmm. That was the intention of it. So how to buy your first car? How to take care of an aging relative? How to get a mortgage? Things like that. How to navigate life? So like a Doctor Spock for uh, for grownups. Like all the civics they don't teach anymore. Exactly right. Rip rip civics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I just I have to point this out. You are the inventor of a a toy or a game, the Baby Panda game. I, I need to know about this. So this was at the time when the uh, the baby panda had just been born in the Washington Zoo, and uh, oh, the infamous, infamous DC baby panda. Yep, that's right. Ying so, or Ling or something. Ling Ling. I don't Ling-ling, recall. I think. I think. Um, we'll research it and post. Yeah. So I, you know, I had uh, a intention of being a toy magnate, and the first product that I invented was called the Baby Panda Game, which is a kind of a, a animal paw print matching game 
sort of like Pan- Candyland, uh, but took place in a zoo and beautifully illustrated by an author who did, uh, have you ever heard of a furred, Michelle Dorman? Um, and, you know, it was, it was very successful, got picked up by Random House Toys and was distributed for many years. And uh, so I had a, a brief stint as, uh, as a toy inventor. I was about to say Rip Toys R Us, but they're back now, apparently. Is that right? So They're coming back in like boutique bougie form in certain malls now. Ah, interesting. They were a, a destination when I was growing up. They certainly were. Yeah. I have an odd relationship to Hasbro, by the way. Um, the cancer center I was treated at is Hassenfeld at NYU, founded <laughs> by the Hassenfeld brothers, right. who are Hasbro. From Rhode Island. Yes. And there's a Hasbro Children's Hospital. Yes, there is. So thank you, Hasbro, for helping save my life. Right. A lot of Scrabble games. Exactly. Lots of Scrabble. Oh, my God. The, the, the littering of toys and Hasbro-ness in the, in the, in the, you know, in the doctor's offices was very self-evident. Right. Hmm. Fun fact. Very fun fact. So, yeah. I mean, and now <laughs> how'd you wind up in the nonprofit world? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting turn of events. Someone I worked with at Lorimar introduced me to um, – a doctor, uh, Carl Flatley, who had just recently lost his young daughter, Erin, it's 23, to something I'd never heard of before called sepsis. And I was really taken by his story, and I didn't really believe it at first. I didn't, you know, this can't be happening in the kind of numbers he's talking about. He said, this is happening every two minutes. Someone's dying of sepsis. He said, this can't be true. Someone would have done something about this already. And I went home, I researched it, and it was true. Sure enough, it was true. There were, uh, there were 350,000 people dying in the U.S. alone of sepsis, something I had never heard of before. So I had the opportunity to help, and I, I saw a real opportunity to do something you know, even more important in my life. And I signed on to help as a, a consultant and became a board member and got very, very involved in this cause that is killing too many of us. And unnecessarily, there's a lot we can do about it, and that has become my life mission. Well, incredibly noble. We, we tend to step into things that may or may not have been born of our condition. But you seem aptly suited for the task, just for the listener's sake and maybe for the, the cheap seats inside my brain. Sepsis, I found out about on an episode of The Sopranos. It's a bacterial infection of the blood. Is that what it is? Or No, correct me. No. Uh, many people, it's often confused and people used to call it blood poisoning. Mm-hmm. So that's something people say, yeah, I've heard of blood poisoning. That is one version of what sepsis can be. But sepsis is your body's reaction to an infection. Any kind of infection. It could be bacterial, viral, like COVID-19, parasitic, or fungal infection. And your body kind of goes to fight the infection but goes into override. It overinflames. It overreacts to that infection and as a result starts to shut your organs down. So the only reason we have to be afraid of infections is because they can become sepsis. And when sepsis co- starts, to, starts to come in, it can, it can cause amputations. 14,000 people require amputations every uh, year. I'm one of or, them. Or death. Bennett here had some amputations. Oh, hi, Bennett. <laughs> yeah. So we have, we have a real-life uh, patient and sepsis survivor with us. And I, I remember when I uh, – after I survived sepsis, I, w- I heard many doctors refer to it as septicemia. So, it, it, you know, depending on who you're talking to, they'll say, oh, sepsis. And then there's a condition called septic shock, which which I had, which is sort of – Sepsis plus. It's like your your uh, opioid coma. Yep. You get you get, uh, and if you were, 
And if you're really, really uh, lucky, you get septic shock with multiple organ failure, which is which is what I had. That's like so the bonus episode. That's the extra <laughs> that's super right. bonus episode. That's the, the, the cherry on top. Is there some Latin declension origin of what the word sepsis is and means it came from? Yeah, it was described, and I have to get the story right, but it's been described by um, in in early text as kind of uh, hectic fever, you know. It, so it's been described way long ago, but for some reason, no one's really taken taken it on as something that needs to be addressed. It's been killing people since the beginning of time, and it also it kills all types of animals. Dogs get sepsis, cats get sepsis, whales off the coast of, of Cape Cod were just recently found to be suffering from sepsis. It is incredibly common. It is the leading cause of death of children globally, it kills more people than cancer globally. And there's a lot we can do about it. We can prevent the infection from happening in the first place through vaccinations and washing your hands and all that good stuff. Or we can be on the lookout when we have an infection, we start to feel sick that we do something about it. It's like stroke or heart attack. You need to do something quickly because then it can advance. On that terrifying note, let's thank evolutionary biology for failing us for the last time. And now a word from our sponsor, Michael Imperioli from HBO Sopranos. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, so that was horrifying, although entertaining when we started with with the Binghamton Michael Jackson stuff. So, so Bennett, going back to this idea we talked about before the show of being a ultra rare survivor of something that's largely unsurvivable. Right. You made it through. Do you get asked how'd you do it? Like it's a ridiculous question, right? I think it's a little bit like it's very much like cancer. Like when someone says, you know. When, when when someone is it talks about lung cancer, they, people immediately flash to the idea that oh, you know, you sort of brought it up on yourself. You must have smoked. But the truth of the matter is that you can get lung cancer from just living your life. So the first thing people generally say when I say that I have sepsis is that they're concerned with you know how did you get it because I don't want it. 
And, uh, and the fact of the matter is anyone can get it because it is, it can result from a viral or bacterial infection that is not stopped, either stopped by your own body's defenses or through, usually it's intravenous medication that will stop it. So, so yeah, I do get asked all the time, you know, you know, how did you get it? And at the time I did, I had a, a viral infection, a strep infection. And um, many years earlier, I had my spleen removed. And for those spleen fans out there, you know. <laughs> the spleen fan the spleen episode. Fan. So, so the spleen is an infection fighting organ. And uh, when I had it taken out in college, uh, at the time, it was 1980, blah, 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 84 or something like that. And the, um, the doctor said, great, we took it out. Have a nice day. You're all done. No need to have anything really checked after that. And years later, I'm taking to, taken to an emergency room, suffering, suffering, in terrible pain, sweating, fever. Something's going on. And the doctors uh, had me take my shirt off and put on a gown, uh, a, a you know, hospital gown. Guy takes one look at my stomach and says, what's going on there, sir? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I just had this thing in college. I had my spleen taken out. And immediately he sort of went flush white, turned to the other resident uh, uh, that night and said, we have a problem here. So how do you, so you, you know, we, we, we talked about, you started talking about how do you get it? You get it from not being able to fight an infection. But in some cases, people who have perfectly formed who who have all of their organs and can fight off infection, they can still be overwhelmed by an infection and it can turn into sepsis. And and actually people who many people who have cancer who are going through cancer treatment, um, who have a weakened immune system, they are more um susceptible to sepsis than the general population. All right. So so all of you spleenless humans listening to the show, be aware. Uh, all right. Question for Tom, biology question, I suppose, science time. Why does the body go into overdrive or does it not realize chemically that it's going into overdrive? Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing for the body to react to an infection, right? You know, you send white cells to the, to the, to the insult. That's a good thing. What we don't completely understand is why does it overreact? Why does the body overstimulate and start to shut its organs down? There are theories about this as evolutionary. If you're that sick, you know, you, you need to be taken out. But now we have antibiotics. We have surgery to remove the source infection. So we have interventions. We have vaccines to prevent infections from happening in the first place. So there's a lot we can do medically. There's a lot we can do from an education point of view. The public, most cases start in the community. So 87% of sepsis starts with a UTI, a boy scratches mosquito bite and plays football and gets infected, dental abscess, kidney stone. You know, think of, think of the pneumonia, uh, flu. All of these can be instigators of an infection that can lead to sepsis. So public education, like stroke, this is a medical emergency. If you're, if you're experiencing the symptoms and we have a, a neat mnemonic called TIME, T-I-M-E, T is for a temperature high or low. I is for signs of an infection, which could be an obvious wound on your skin, or it could be painful urination, et cetera. M is for mental status change. You know, he just wasn't himself. He wasn't right. E is for extreme pain or discomfort. People report that they've never been so sick in their lives. And in the, and in the presence of these symptoms, you need to either call 911 
get to a doctor, not next Tuesday, but today, or go to the emergency department. It reminds me of in melanoma, there's like something called the ABCDEs. It's like, is it abnormal? A stroke has fast, F-A-S-T, face, arms, speech, time. Now I'm struggling on what the hell the B was in melanoma. I should know this, right? It's like uh, abnormal color. Actually, it's abnormal, uh, uh, something with a B. It's um, the color is off, the diameter is large, and something else. I'm sorry, melanoma survivors who hear my show, I failed you. But yeah, the ac- do the acronyms help? They they do. It's you know because it's easy for people to you know with stroke it was really a game changer. You know, and people it used to be a whole page of of potential symptoms. People can't remember a page. People remember four things: temperature, infection, mental status, extreme pain, and all this can be found on our website sepsis.org. Yeah, we're going to plug the website, of course. Thank you. All right, so another dumb question from someone that's gratefully not have to deal with this type of fuckery. I've dealt with my own type of fuckery. And I would imagine this is also a diversion based on culture and economy and, 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 and governments and all sorts of stuff that affects anything anyway. How is this not found as quickly as it can be? Or is it just this undiscovered accidental, oh, my God, let's turn it over to the guy that had it? I'll answer. And, you know, in my case— the doctors who saw me that night were smart and they were with it and they suspected sepsis right away. You know, is that common? It is not as common as it should be. There are many medical departments that look for other things first and don't suspect sepsis. So they will say, oh, he's got a uh, – his abdomen is a little tender. Maybe there's a stomach ache or maybe there's a kidney stone or maybe there's something else. And it might be that, but sepsis could also be on its way down the road. So, I mean, statistically, Tom, maybe you can talk about how frequently it is misdiagnosed because many, many sepsis deaths occur – Because the first doctor seeing the patient, and sometimes this could be an EMT, the first doctor who is encountering a patient is not thinking this individual is showing signs of uh, uh, sepsis and maybe rapidly declining because that's, as Tom mentioned, time is the key factor here. If sepsis is not suspected early enough in a patient's presentation, that patient may very well die And if they're not going to die, they may develop uh, gangrene and they may need to have limbs and things removed. So many times you'll hear about sepsis patients who did survive, but they lost one one or both of their legs uh, below the knee, or they may have lost an arm above the elbow. It's a, it's a really, really terrible thing. And so indeed the person has, has survived sepsis, but the change to their life is going to is going to be significant. Yeah, it's it's not that easy to diagnose. It can look like other things. So we really need healthcare providers to be on the lookout for it. It's it's the most common cause of death in hospitals. So what we have to have healthcare providers thinking about is could it be sepsis first? There's no simple test for it yet. We have diagnostic tools, but there's no simple test that really requires patients and their family members to say, could it be sepsis, to put it on the radar 
and then certain things will happen. In New York, there's something called Rory's Law that requires all hospitals to have a protocol in place named after a young boy, Rory Staunton, 12 years old, died in New York City after cutting himself in a gym class. Pediatrician missed the diagnosis, hospital missed the diagnosis, just a, a terrible tragedy. The state now requires all hospitals to have a protocol to be on the lookout for it and do certain things. Nationally, there's SEP1, which requires all hospitals uh, for adults to be on the lookout for sepsis and do certain things. So, but there's no like initial sepsis screening to start with and work backwards from? There is, and that's what New York now requires, and okay. we're trying to get in, you know imposed nationally that every hospital, including children's hospitals, because this is a leading cause of death of children in the United States. More, more children die of sepsis than cancer. In the U.S., so has it been shown to reduce sepsis deaths? This policy, absolutely, Good. yes, yes. That's what it's, it's the whole point of it is supposed to do that. Absolutely, those hospitals that administer the protocol and the screening tool successfully have a lower mortality rate. So there's a direct causal relationship and and awareness also because many many people show up to an emergency room with someone else, either a parent, a caregiver, a friend, or something like that. So the more people who are walking into these emergency departments complaining about one thing or another, if the if the person who is with them says to the doctor, does my friend, child, husband, wife, you know, are you checking for sepsis? That can help because the doctor may may know a lot about sepsis, but it may not be at the forefront of their mind when they are seeing this patient in an emergency situation. Right. Well, I'm glad you said it that way because it's really easy to throw doctors under the bus, right? I mean, again, just looking at how easy it is to misdiagnose pretty much anything. Yeah. Right? Is it fair There's to do There's a million ways no. to die. Yeah, there really are a million ways to die. All right, another... I've worked in some cancer health policy work, and I know how hard it is to get other states to give a shit when it works in other states. What case are you making, or who are the lobbyists, per se, on your side trying to get this to work in other states? Yeah, if there was ever a bipartisan issue, it's sepsis, because it's not only kills lots of people, injures lots of people, but it's the most expensive cost of hospital care in the country. So if you go to states and make them understand how many of their People are dying. How many? How much workplace productivity is being lost when they're in the hospital or recovering, and how much it's costing them? They start to pay attention. So I think you have to make an argument on on all dimensions of this. Well, I, I think I saw a statistic, and I don't have it offhand, but we're talking in the billions of dollars. The cost of sepsis in the United States, and if it is, as Tom mentioned, it is one of the leading causes of death. Period. So if more doctors and more healthcare providers are thinking about sepsis, lives will be saved, but dollars will be saved as well. Well, it's all economics and capitalism, right? If you can show Kaiser Permanente that you'll save $6 billion in the next 10 years by doing this, it's a simple thing to say out loud and hear right. your words, but implementing it, we know, could take forever to get done. So obvious question, what does the Sepsis Alliance do? So we work in four areas. One is to make sure the public knows about sepsis, like like stroke or heart attack. So making sure folks know that they need care urgently if they observe these symptoms in themselves or a loved one, call 911, et cetera. Uh, we also provide support for sepsis survivors. We have a, a community called Sepsis Alliance Connect, has over 1,000 members now in just a year. Uh, and we provide support communities and support services for those folks because uh, there's a lot of post-sepsis syndrome, we call it, where people have cognitive, um, mental, executive functioning challenges post-hospital care. 
We also train healthcare professionals. We have over 150 courses online for healthcare professionals free of charge, home health aides, skilled nursing facilities, first responders, dentists, oncologists, OBGYN, you name it. We have education and training for them. And we have over 40,000 professionals who we've trained. And, and how many years have you been around? We've been around for 15. We've only been doing uh, professional education for about three years now. And how have you found it moving from board to CEO? Um, it's great. I have the opportunity, you know, to to work hands on in something I'm incredibly passionate about. You know, we hear tragedy stories, tragic stories every day, but we also hear stories of people who took what they learned from us and applied it either as medical professionals or as a good neighbor or as a relative. And we get stories in that, you know, I told someone to go to go to the ED and, and they had sepsis and they were treated effectively and sent home. Pregnant people, this is the number two cause of maternal mortality in this country is sepsis, you know, really tragic and disproportionately affects underserved communities, medically underserved communities. As everything does. As everything does. Yes. So let's close with, you know, it's easy to show the bald kids on the St. Jude commercial, but it's always nice to show the kids that are alive playing soccer because of St. Jude. And, you know, Bennett, you are one of those people. I want to just ask, how did you find out about this community and what did it mean to you and how are you supporting it? You know, I think I've, I, I don't know how many years I've been work, you know, working with Sepsis Alliance. It's got to be more than 10 years at this point. But um, after I, I, I had sepsis, I had a lot of people, you know, coming up to me, oh my gosh, you know, it's incredible that you're alive. You offer so much hope. And when you talk about things like sepsis and cancer, as we were talking about earlier, if you are a survivor, you of, of something that is so amazingly hopeless and tragic. If you have survived this, you almost have a duty to, to talk about it and give people hope. So get, and, and I, I felt that I needed to do that. Um, so a number of years, five years after I had sepsis, I was getting a little flabby and out of shape. So I talked to my doctor and he said, why don't you start to run? So I started to run and I sort of like uh, Forrest Gump and I just kept running. And so then I started training for a marathon. And in 2008, which was five years after I had sepsis, I ran the New York City Marathon. Woo good for me. And at that time, I raised money, I don't know, for a lung cancer charity or something like that. But I did wear a shirt that said sepsis survivor on it. And I cannot tell you how many people would sort of pat me on the back and be like, oh, yeah, I'm a sepsis survivor too, or my friend had sepsis. And I have run the New York City Marathon every year since, with the exception of uh, <laughs> exception of the, of the year 2012 when it was canceled. But every year since, I've run the New York City Marathon and I've run a whole bunch of other marathons and half marathons, always wearing this sepsis survivor shirt. And uh, I remember I was running once in New Orleans and a guy comes up to me, I don't know, like in mile 17 when we're all dying out there. And he said, dude, I've been following you the whole way. I survived sepsis too. So we give each other a high five and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's really a fabulous thing to, to be part of this community of sepsis survivors because there are not many of us and many of us, as I mentioned earlier, are living a life maybe without a foot, without a leg or without an arm or something else. So the fact that, you know, all I did is I lost four toes is something, it's it's a miracle. I mean, it's, it's incredible to be here in a room with another miracle. And um, 
Well, the so parallels are extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, the, the likelihood that you would survive are Isolation, very low. fear, yeah. guilt, community, family. It's all the lifestyle of having something happen to you you didn't ask for, and somehow you're still here. But thanks to the awareness and progress, I'm perseverating on helping you get every fucking state to, to mandate this thing. But I, again, like, I, I love being the armchair on this and I'm grateful for things I have not had. <laughs> Somewhat grateful for the things I've had because I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't have them, to case in point. Right. But I'm, I want to keep talking about this. We'd love to have you back on the show. This is great. You, 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 I'm, I'm sold. You had me a hello. We're, we're here. We're done. <laughs> I love this. I hate that I have to love it, but here it is helping people. You know, have I, a, I think for the for for the cancer community, being aware of sepsis is very very important. As yeah. you're going through treatment, whether it's chemo or radiation, yeah, you're at risk for everything that much more. You are at risk. Yes, and 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 raising your hand and saying, "I'm not feeling well. Do I have sepsis?" An oncologist has a lot on their mind. They're trying to keep you alive. They're trying to do a hundred different things, and so reminding them that you may have something else that could kill you besides the cancer that you are fighting is really, really important. Well, Bennett Kleinberg, I don't know how to outro you. I'm just going to say the guy that worked on the Rolling Stone Steel Wheels tour and a sepsis survivor. <laughs> Tom is a Vestal Plaza Denny survivor of Binghamton University, <laughs> my alma mater, and the president and CEO of the Sepsis Alliance. And I just love this baby panda game. I'm going to put a link. You can tell me where I could I can buy it. I'll put a link in the episode description. Or is it over? It's gone. All right. Rip baby panda game. Rip Tony Bennett. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank Thanks you. so much for having us. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.